0: Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China produced in partnership with The China Project. Subscribe to Access from The China Project to get access, access to not only our great daily newsletter, but to all the original writing on our website at thechinaproject.com. We've got reported stories, essays and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. The fall of the Gang of Four, the return to power of Deng Xiaoping, and the inauguration of reform and opening ushered in a period that was, in so many ways, a profound break with Maoist China. Uh, Once reform and opening had built up ahead of steam, one could point to China and say, look, the country's ruling elites were, you know, now drawn from an entirely different class, uh, following an explicit command from on high to, you know, radically change the composition of the party from what it had been, you know, workers and peasants and soldiers, into a class of of educated technocrats, you know, with 80% of them holding college degrees. Uh, The fundamental economic order seemed to have been radically transformed as well, you know, as, as the iron rice bowl was smashed and entrepreneurial energy was just unleashed and, you know, getting rich was glorious. China's foreign policy orientation had changed abruptly too. It had entered into what was a de facto alliance with the United States with the power that had a few short years earlier been the very embodiment of imperialist capitalism uh, in order to check the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. It was tempting then to think of the new leadership under Deng and his successors as representing a significant break from Mao, and in many ways, they were. But there were continuities as well features of Maoism that endured long after the chairman's death in 1976, and were more than just what I've called the load-bearing walls of party power and organization of the revolutionary legacy of, of legitimacy, you might say, that Deng and those who've come since have allowed to remain intact or have even buttressed, uh, and more than the superficial presence of Mao you know, on the currency and atop the central gate of Tiananmen Square. Today, we're going to be exploring some of those continuities in an area that's perhaps surprising, in enterprise, in business. And joining me to talk about Mao's continuing legacy is my good friend, Christopher Marquis, who some of you may know as the host of the excellent China Corner Office podcast. Chris is senior professor of Chinese management at Cambridge University's Judge School of Business and formerly a professor at Cornell's Business School. He's also the co-author, along with Kun Chao, of the book Mao and Markets, The Communist Roots of Chinese Enterprise, and we'll be discussing that book today on the show. Chris Marquis, a very warm welcome to Seneca.
1: Thanks so much, Kaiser. Wonderful to be with you.
0: Yeah, finally. It's taken us a while to get you on. Right. (laughs) Uh, So, Chris, let's start off with just a, a chat about your book. Sure. I guess, you know, what compelled you to write it? Uh, Was there some conventional wisdom that you saw taking shape that you maybe wanted to challenge or some puzzling observation you were at pains to explain? And, And why the focus on business rather than on some other facet of Chinese life where the residue of Maoism is maybe a little more conspicuous?
1: Yeah, sure. So a couple of things. One, I think, you know, your intro really highlighted very well how how many changes actually there were post Mao in the economy in a variety of political arenas as well. And I think that, you know, my background is actually a bit different than many other China scholars. I'm not someone yeah. who has a PhD in Chinese studies. I have a PhD in sociology. Although I did start going to China and spending a reasonable amount of time in China starting in 2009, 2010. And given everything that you said, that was how I understood China. So when I would see very obvious displays towards Mao, towards the CCP, it was puzzling to me. And, and I wanted to sort of understand this. What Was this just displays or actually was there some sort of deeper ideological commitment Because many of the structural things that that you mentioned, I think, you know, clearly there's been changes. I mean, as you mentioned, there's still a deep legitimacy tie to Mao and the early CCP history that is continually buttressed, particularly under Xi. But I want to think, you know, look at business, actually, because I was at a business school. I was interacting with a lot of business leaders of SOEs, private firms, and they seem to actually practice capitalism Different than the business leaders I had actually interacted with in the West, and so you know, this is what started. um, I guess about a ten-year journey of trying to analyze through a variety of different data sources and interviews. What actually are the sort of thoughts and ideology of entrepreneurs and business leaders in China?
0: So, what would you identify as the key Maoist elements that you still see in Chinese enterprise, and and what? Gives them this this ability to endure despite all the other changes.
1: Sure. So I think I mean first let me say a little bit about the enduring of property. Um, so yeah. a lot of business leaders and these are you know private end entrepreneurs, not just SOE leaders. They were socialized into the CCP during Mao's era, and this is different than the folks that got brought into the into the CCP under the three represents. So those Mm -hmm. folks, you know, they had actually had success in their business careers, you know, like Robin Lee of Baidu, who I I think you worked with.
0: (laughs) I did (laughs) very closely.
1: You know, he, I don't know if he was in the CCP, but, but, you know, he was, he, he attended the, you know, the, the two parties, the, the Chinese consultative, um, Congress. And, you know, there was a real effort to co-opt successful business leaders actually there's a much Go, go ahead. There, there's a much larger population of entrepreneurs and business leaders that actually were CCP members before they established the enterprises. So they went through, you know, the you know variety of socialization, be it, you know, attending meetings and self criticisms and meeting with mentors and you know watching documentaries and watching speeches and you know eventually being admitted to the CCP. And these activities actually happened at a very influential time period in their lives. There's research in psychology that suggests the period like where you're transitioning from being traditionally in your family's home to being on your own around, you know, 18 to 20, 25 actually has, you have deep cognitive influence on you. So we wanted to look at the folks that had gone through this process during that time period and see actually, do they run their businesses differently Than entrepreneurs that did not go through this process or went through the process later actually under, you know, when Dung was the sort of supreme leader and what we found sort of the key, the things that we actually identified as, you know, business operations that are consistent with Maoism include like a greater nationalism. So Mm -hmm. business leaders that have this sort of deep Maoist imprint, we call it, you know, have, much less foreign investment, and they're much less likely to go out. So, you know, during this time period from 2000, 2003, four, five on, I mean, there's been increasing push from the Chinese government for companies to go out to establish foreign operations. However, these entrepreneurs were much less likely to actually engage in that, even though the government was telling them to. Another item actually is, I would say, in in regards to social responsibility. You know, Mao talked about sort of mass line, serve the people, and we find that as well. These businesses with the deep Maoist imprint actually are much more likely to be engaged in their communities and, um, you know, work in social responsibility. Yeah.
0: Uh, That's ironic. (laughs) uh, Another
1: yeah, yeah, very ironic, very ironic. Um, and I think you know it's it's interesting because um, you know I think it really you know it talks about the the depth in some ways of you know the socialization process. Another one is frugality. Actually, hmm. you know, Ma talked a lot about self reliance, and and the, the and the entrepreneurs actually with this deep Maoist imprint actually operate their business in a more frugal manner than other entrepreneurs.
0: So corporate social responsibility aside and and maybe even going out aside, some of these other things seem like they might not necessarily be Maoist. I mean, it's hard, I imagine, to tease out which elements are are specifically Maoist and which are simply traditional Chinese, right? I mean, it's tempting, I think, to to see a Laoban at a Chinese enterprise who is, you know, maybe – has some Mao like qualities. Maybe he's capricious and uh, arbitrary and tyrannical, <laughs> maybe strategically brilliant but often, you know, really abstract and vague. We all know the type. Sure. But it seems like a type of leader who would, you know, not only predate Mao, but who can also be found in non PRC parts of, of the Chinese world. You know, you could find that guy in Taiwan, you could find that guy in Hong Kong or in, in you know, San Gabriel Valley. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely, and I've you know sort of yeah I've interacted with a lot of these um, you know a lot of these leaders as well, and so wh- how we try to study this is not actually by observing entrepreneurs or you know even interviewing them, but we have large scale data on both entrepreneurs and public companies in China, so. Thousands of entrepreneurs, the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences have been collecting data on private businesses and entrepreneurs going back to the early 1990s. So we have this data, we're able to use this data to understand, you know, which type of entrepreneurs are actually engaging in these what we sort of describe as Maoist practices, like more, you know, more nationalism, so anti-foreign, mm-hmm. more social responsibility, more frugality. And so, you know, we can use statistical techniques to compare. The entrepreneurs that go through the socialization process during Miles' time period, which is about 25% of the entrepreneurs in this data, and they operate their business in very significantly different ways than people, let's say, that, that actually grew up during those times but did not enter the CCP. And then also people that, you know, or more recently socialized into the CCP under Dung or more recently grew up but did not go into the CCP.
0: So let me get a sense of how big they are. I mean, you said about 25 percent of the people that you studied qualified just basically sure. in terms of that, that formative period of their lives that was spent, you know marinating in, in Maoism. What percentage of, of the industrial output do they, does that 25 percent of entrepreneurs represent though? I mean, is it, is it a significant piece of of the Chinese GDP? or:
1: So my guess is that it, it is a significant part of the the GDP. And this is not from our data per se. There are, you know, fifteen million plus Chinese entrepreneurs, and I, I think right. it's over sixty percent of the of the GDP. Of course, you know, the state or and the CCP has been encroaching on them in recent years, and so the question, you know, how actually private or you know non state owned are they is is I think a reasonable question. But what we look at is the data that was collected was just on thousands of entrepreneurs you know, representative across 30 provinces of China. So it was a representative Mm -hmm. sample. So we can't really add up the sum of the folks that we studied, but we can sort of extrapolate to the broader population to suggest it is a a big, you know, big population because, you know, surprising probably to many in the West, there's actually many, many more private enterprises than state-owned firms and much greater GDP even uh, from private firms than SOEs.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I mean that that's that's the next logical question is do you find the extent of this Maoist imprint to vary by uh, industry sector or, you know, between like, is there a disparity between, you know, private and SOEs? Is there a disparity between like really te- kind of tech heavy uh, industries and more kind of rudimentary basic industries?
1: So, we, we do not study uh, SOEs as part of this. We actually only look at private firms uh, because those are the ones, I mean, we assume that the SOEs, the leader, you know, I'm sure, I don't know if by definition, but there's a very strong correlation between CCP membership and leader of an SOE. It might be a correlation sure. of one, perhaps. Um, so we so the um, the data from the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences is actually only on private enterprises. So that that does not include SOEs. We look at Chinese publicly traded companies as well and find similar patterns. But for those, I mean there's Chinese public firms that are both SOEs and not in private firms and so sure. we exclude the SOEs just to, because we feel that, you know, it, by definition those are going to be you know, you know, CCP oriented.
0: Uh, you would think that you'd want to look though anyway just to see you know do they exhibit more frugality do they exhibit you know yeah. uh, more nationalism do they exhibit less of a tendency to want to go out uh, i mean i imagine it would probably confirm what you were what you were thinking but it would be nice.
1: yeah i i i i agree i mean that that we 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 should actually take a look take a look at that and in some ways you know your first question was about what I don't know, sort of counterintuitive, you know, aspect of our research where we're trying to examine. And, you know, this idea, the title of the book is Mao and Markets. And in some ways we feel it's like a strong test of this idea that is Maoism or is, you know, a deep commitment to early CCP, CCP principles enduring uh, by looking at private entrepreneurs, because you would think that those would be the folks that would be
0: the furthest away from Maoism. You would. <laughs> So what about what about the technology divide? I mean I'm I'm trying to imagine.
1: So that um that we controlled for industry but I don't think that we found any particularly significant uh effects via industry. I'd have to look back go look hmm. back at the uh regression tables. But one thing that would be important to say is that so if you think about at a very simple level, it's a little bit more complex than this, but a very simple level, you can think about four different types of entrepreneurs in China per se. You can think about entrepreneurs that were socialized in the CCP during Mao's Mm -hmm. era and those that were socialized in the CCP after Mao's era. So you have, you know, before Mao and after Mao CCP members, you then also have individuals that grew up during Mao's era and those that grew up after Mao's era. And so we find that actually, you know the the people that were not CCP members and grew up after Mao's era are much less likely to engage in these Maoist type of activities, and and that is the period actually when the tech industry really exploded. And so my guess is there would be an industry difference, but it would be driven more by just the entrepreneurs being of different cohorts, basically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But
0: you know, at at some point, somebody's got to look at yourself and say, well, yeah, I mean. Of course, right. It's 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 just a function of age. Then ultimately, right. What, what seems to be the only salient vari- variable is how old were you when Mao died? Basically, right.
1: Sure. So um, that is true. There isn't correlation with age, but you know there is a difference between actually the people that went through that became CCP members, and again, these are only about twenty five percent of of entrepreneurs uh, and seventy five percent. So if you look at even people that. You know, let's say someone who was born in like 1950, you know, is 26 Mm -hmm. when Mao dies. So, Mm -hmm. if you think of 100 of those people, um, so 25 of those 26 years olds would be adhering to the, you know, strongly adhering to the to what we predict, and the other 75 actually would be much less so. And so, um, so there is a a difference via cohort. um, You know, within the cohort part of what we're trying to examine is how socialization into an ideology can have a lasting effect. Uh, and but, so that is the way that the way that we try to examine that.
0: Yeah, I imagine you'd probably find a similar effect if you went and looked at uh, CEOs of American companies who had served in the military or not, right? They would probably have a distinctly sure. different leadership style. Yeah. So yeah, I'm, yeah and, socialization.
1: Yeah, and there's research that looks at you know, if you uh, go through the great depression in, in the West, you know, that actually leads people to have much different leadership styles later in life. And in the book, we actually look at three different aspects of Maoism to really try to understand how, um, you know, it has a lasting effect. So this one we've been talking about, is the ideological principles, and we also include in that military ideas and principles, and and you probably know many of these surround the cities from countryside. You know, a spark can you know lead to a wildfire. Um, right. So that's sort of the first part of the book: uh, ideology and military principles. The second part is effect of mass campaigns, and so you know Mao was really you know well known for all of, from the Yan'an Rectification to Great Leap Forward to. Cultural Revolution to even um, a campaign that I was not as familiar with when we started the, the work as uh, a third front construction, which sure, yeah. uh, I, I got, you know, done some, uh, a lot of work in Xi'an at one of the universities there. And they were telling me how, you know, Mao moved a bunch of the aircraft um, industry to Xi'an because it was right. safe from the U S and safe from the Soviet Union. And so we studied the, the third front construction as well. So we looked at these three, we didn't look at the NN rectification. But we looked at greatly forward um, cultural Revolution and third front construction is how these different campaigns have had a lasting effect on entrepreneurship and business. And I, I can happy to talk about those. But then the third part of the book uh, looks at institutions uh, from, you know, political institutions be it SOEs, how China actually sort of slowly broke away from more of a state-owned to more of a private-owned economy, things like party branches or party cells, which are sort of in the news. Golden shares were not as you know in the news then, so we, we didn't have a way to look at those. Uh, and also, interestingly, Mao, how he and the early CCP organized the economy was fundamentally different than the Soviet Union. So there's some discussion how it actually was from Mao's experience as a military leader. So he actually gave his, you know, the, you know, generals relatively wide latitude to actually, you know, do, you know, sort of conduct the the uh, the war as was needed in those locations. And so as a result of that, actually there was much greater latitude given to provincial governors than in the Soviet Union, where think where industries are much more. You know, much more centralized. Whereas in the in China, it was much more you know the economically decentralized, which, as you said, allowed for a lot of experimentation. So, you know, in addition to just the ideological principles, those are the other um, you know areas of Maoism or sort of Mao Mao's ideas and influence that have had a lasting effect.
0: I I always have trouble distinguishing what's ideology and what's sort of just style. For example. Sure. Are mass campaigns ideological, irrespective of their content? I mean, if it has an, a clearly ideological content, then yeah, of course, it's ideological. But you know, they can be used mm-hmm. in sort of ideologically secular uh, purposes as well. No? So I, I feel like some oh, of this is is more stylistic sure. rather than ideological. So it's hard to tweeze those two things apart.
1: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And and I and I probably uh, because I think the Great Leap Forward and Cultural Revolution were. Ideology, you, so know, very, you know, had a lot of ideology uh, associated with them. But the third front construction, I mean, a little bit, you know, so, you know, being fearful of, uh, you know, of attack, um, but not so much like the Great Leap Forward or Cultural Revolution, where it was like a political ideology. Um, right. You know, even I think Xi Jinping is known for governing by campaign style now. So, you know, you look at the semiconductor campaign, you look at even the campaign, you know, you know, people's war against COVID. Uh, you look at even the anti-corruption campaign. So some of those are more political than the others, but I but I think you're right. I mean, and I, you know, we, we talk about ideolo- ideological principles in the first part of the book. And then the second part is not solely about ideological campaigns. It's about campaigns as a key governance technique. And that actually having those campaigns actually ha- does also
0: have a lasting effect both on entrepreneurs and business ecosystems. How do you know how much of what you see as fundamentally Maoist isn't just paying lip service or performed, you know, kind of recitation just to signal loyalty? It's kind of hard to tweeze these two things apart too, right? Totally. And I,
1: and I, and I think this is, um, I think this is why trying to do quantitatively oriented work is important. Uh, I mean, I'm someone, I mean, I have a PhD in sociology. I was in a PhD program in history a long time ago. You know, I really believe in, you know, a need to try to understand the context. Um, and that's why I, you know, lived in China for a reasonable period of time, you know, tried, still, still tried to, to be learning Chinese and, and get around okay. Although I <laughs> can't say my Chinese is is that good. Um, so, I mean, I do really believe that you need to understand the context. You can't just sort of sure. run regressions on databases but I think also a lot of the studies I read on China, you know, excellent studies, but you know, I, I wonder the extent to which they're just confirming the author's existing biases, um, or, you know, what they already have in their head. Because if you sure. just go out and look for, you know, stories that confirm what you think, it's sort of easy to actually write a compelling book. So, uh, you know, there is a lot of lip service certainly, and this was in many ways, um, the motivation behind, you know, what I studied, I, I, you know, started going to China, and because I was a professor at a leading business school, had pretty good access to, you know, a variety of different audiences. Good, you know, and people were talking like this, and I'm like, is this just lip service? And so, you know, through these quantitative databases that have, you know, data that's representative across. A variety of different geographies and age classes and types of businesses, you know, you can see which businesses actually are run in different ways, and um, and so it's not just people saying it, but they're actually running their business, running actually their business with different strategies. Uh, and I think that's um, that's a little bit deeper of a connection uh, than than because probably you know at certain time periods, you know, I, you know probably the people. That don't have a this Maoist imprint we talk about might even be the most vocally Maoist at times because hmm. you know it they they want to appear legitimate and they want to actually um, you know sort of signal that their their loyalty or whatever uh, and and we interviewed a lot of people actually as well for, for this project I mean I've interviewed hundreds of you know entrepreneurs politicians uh, business leaders but we for to to really try to ask entrepreneurs about you know, Maoist strategies, their commitment to Mao. And we found, you know, in the, these factors that we're looking at, we found stronger commitment to Mao among the CCP members the people that were, you know, in the CCP. However, still, you know, universally, you know, people that were not CCP members still quoted Mao. They said how much they were influenced by Mao. So, you know, there is definitely still a lot of lip service. And, and one of the reasons why I think trying to study this with a, you know, large scale representative data is important.
0: So when they would say they were influenced by Mao, these non-party people, was sure. it often in, in the way that sort of that popular genre of business book is written about, you know, some of them are based on the teachings of Sun Tzu and, and the art of war. Others are are based on, you know, on Mao, right? You, there was a whole popular genre of these, like in the late 1990s. Uh you know, how to do this. And it, it was stuff like, you know, the countryside surrounds the city. Here's uh you know, I remember writing a story about Xiaoling Tong, this, uh, this sort of primitive phone service, this kind of quasi mobile phone right. service called Limited Loop or something like that. Or oh, local loop, uh, closed local loop, I think it was called. Um, and people would constantly invoke, yeah, you know, the countryside surrounds the city or things sure. like that was it that sort of thing or so so there there is definitely that there
1: is also you know there's a variety of um yeah the 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 surround the city um cities from the countryside is sort of is sort of the most famous and i actually think um you know i mean i think that that china has a very large rural population i mean and i and so sure. it's um you know it's smart
0: strategy um, yeah
1: <laughs> Yeah. It's, it's sort of a, you know, you, you go where the people are, uh, you exactly. go where the people are and they're sort of on, you know, l- l- less, uh, touched by larger companies. Uh, but you know, the, the, the importance of Mao as a leader, people talked about, I think I saw surveys on, I forget what the, um, what the Chinese version of the it Zihu, the version of Quora. Um,
0: yeah. Quora. Juhu, Yeah.
1: Jir Yeah. Um, yeah they uh so I think I, I saw some survey on that that you know the most important person in history is Mao under some sort of su- survey, and so I think there is um, a deep reverence for Mao uh, uh, you know not just among entrepreneurs but among you know Chinese um, in general. And I mean, I've seen this, I mean, I've been to Mao's birthplace. I mean, it's like you know more like Graceland than Mount Vernon, yeah. certainly.
0: Mao more than ever, baby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I remember uh, when I was at, at Baidu, uh, the one one morning I went with my, my then boss, Robin Lee, to go give a talk. Yeah. And he, he was talking about how um, one of the things that he has learned from the Chinese Communist Party uh, is the way that they will tackle large problems by breaking them down into manageable smaller pieces, like, like discrete mm-hmm. subroutines and functions. He says it's very much like coding. Uh, that mm-hmm. that uh, okay. they've introduced that same kind of a, a practice. So yeah, you know, I mean, even he was making direct references to. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we don't know no, if it was that's... a Maoist thing, but it was certainly a party practice.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, the party is. I uh, certainly a lot of practices in in managing the economy that um, you know have 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 turned have turned out well for China. Although, you know, last few years, um, you know, under under Xi, maybe maybe less so
0: yeah well let's we'll we'll get to that in a second, but I guess a lot of us sure. would see the the good old red versus expert kind of tension at play yeah. here in in what we're talking about and conclude nice. that you know after Mao's death, well the pendulum just kind of swung increasingly in the expert direction as the state got increasingly technocratic increasingly market oriented um and and that red had really little to do with it except in a kind of pro forma sense in, in that lip service sense. Uh, but that's not what you're seeing you're seeing that right. there's uh this kind of stubborn kernel that that's persisted and that it is actually in in some cases uh not such a bad thing for the performance of these businesses
1: yeah i you know i it may not actually be good for the performance i mean i think that not going you know sort of eschewing internationalization probably hurt these businesses economically
0: uh, and it was actually I've seen also businesses that have been not ready for prime time and have gone out and and sure. gotten burnt because sure they thing. just did not understand foreign markets. I mean, if you're a yeah. real parochial kind of a a business and you know you're really parochial, you're probably better off than being you know really parochial and and not being aware of that and thinking you're ready for sure. the, the foreign markets.
1: Yeah, that makes so. sense. Uh, and I would say on the red versus expert. I mean, that is in some ways personnel and people way to think about it. You know, you you opened with st- talking about the different, in some ways, structural changes. And you know, when Dung actually articulated the reform and opening in the late 70s, and then I think it was written in the Constitution in, in the early 80s, uh, he it was actually uh one of two basic points. And it was the second basic point. And the first basic point was I, I forget what it's called, all these different terms. They're like the four cardinal principles maybe. Sure. I, I forget what it isn't. In- yeah. And so one of those was, you know, holding on to Mao uh, thought. Another one was having the CCP at the center of all activity, the dictatorship of the proletariat. Right? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. so I do think that, and we in the West, and this is where I think, you know, um, you know, when I take students to China, my own, my own self, as someone who read a lot about China, but had actually not really spent time there until I was, you know, until I was a little older, had not been educated, um, you know, in, you know, in you know, per, per se in Chinese history and culture culture, you know, I was, um, I, I think I overestimated the reform and opening in my mind. I think my students, when they go to China overestimate that. And I think that, you know, it's maybe partially wishful thinking, thinking, of course, you know, China wants to open, they want to be like us, they want to grow economically. Uh, and maybe you know ignore ignore the first of the two basic points basically because we like the second one
0: right Now I've seen that happen there's certainly people who, who do that but you can also you know go too far in the other direction I don't think that you do do here but you aren't arguing that you know Chinese business as practiced today still is fundamentally Maoist but you're just saying that there are look there's there's noticeable recognizable strains of it in there uh so what's significant about that what do we do with that i mean how does that affect us in the way that say we want to uh have business relationships with chinese enterprises uh, how should that how should this enter into our thinking in the way we deal uh with with chinese enterprises that may be helmed by somebody whose formative experiences were during the Maoist period
1: Sure, definitely, because uh, I really—I mean—that's in some ways the important, um, important question. Uh, I, I think a couple things, and I think that actually it extends beyond just business to also, you know, politics as well. I think the the um, you know what we try to argue is that the depth of, in some ways, you know, Maoism CCP ideology in China is much greater than we in the West appreciate, and I think structurally, how China is set up is very different than the West. I think we're very used to having very separate state market, but, you know, in, you know, Dung is famous for many of these great, you know, sayings like, you know, it's this black cat or white cat, as long as it catches a mouse and, you know, a little bit of state, a little bit market, um, you know, it doesn't matter because they're just tools. And I think that last one is really both in, both insightful and also telling. Um, because it's important, you know, both the state and market are tools because they're both under the CCP. And so I don't want to get too political necessarily, but I do think that, you know, the depth and enduring nature of, of the ideology and, and institutional aspects of the CCP, I think are hard for Westerners to see because we, we, you know, naturally, both naturally uh, sort of think of the state and market as discrete uh, entities that are in tension and competition, not that a single entity would be in some ways using either of them as tools. And also, I think a real knee-jerk reaction against anything, you know, communist or socialist. I mean, you see this, in the Republican party in the US, you know, you know, everything gets labeled socialist and no one actually thinks about what is actually socialism or not. Um, and then it's just sort of this knee jerk, you know, negative reaction. And so I think that, you know, we have this knee jerk reaction against, uh, China in many cases that I think impedes our understanding of how the system works on a more fundamental level. And I think it's really important to try to dig into the institutions to the ideology uh in in a in a neutral way and not just be wishful thinking or knee-jerk condemnation uh because you know we're the u.s and china are the two largest economies in the world there's going to be continued trade hopefully continued educational exchange and so let's try to understand china
0: so i'm, I'm still having trouble with the idea what we are defining here is ideology, and I have I have this with every everyone I talk to, basically, because, you know, when we say Maoist ideology, what is that really? So this is, you know, it's got a foundation of Marxism-Leninism. So are these entrepreneurs, these capitalists, are they? Is the ideological content something along the lines of yes, I am part of an exploitative class that is siphoning off surplus value from the laborers <laughs> who I exploit. <laughs> uh, no, obviously yeah. not. Are they like Hegelians? Are they thinking about, you know, um the 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 you know Marxist operation of history? Probably not. They seem right. to be more sort of stylistic rather than ideological to me. Um that that they you know embrace this idea of mass campaigns. we call nationalism in ideology. It certainly isn't supposed to be part of Marxism, it certainly is part of Maoism. But it's also kind of a generic thing, right, um, nationalism sure. as an ideology. So I, I'm, I'm always wondering what, what is the content of ideology when, when somebody talks about China is now more ideological than it was? Is it more than just nationalism?
1: Yeah, sure. Good, good. Really, really good question. And, and a hard, very hard one to answer, I, I must say. I mean, first of all, I mean, you know, the dictatorship of the pro- proletariat, you know, sort of Hegelian approaches to history. I mean, I would say that those are, um, you know, those are very traditional Marxist ideas. And, you know, Mao, in a variety of ways, tried to adapt, you know, and maybe not even adapt, but he tried to, you know, create a system that resonated with Chinese culture. I mean, certainly the ideas of sort of frugality and uh, I mean, are, are deep in, in um, are deeper in Chinese culture than, than, than Maoism. Um, I think, you know, he was well known for sort of, you know, on his on practice um, essay, which, which I think was the first Maoist essay that got sort of read in the, in the Soviet union, which was a big, you know, sort of triumph, uh, triumph for him. And that is actually, you know, seeking truth from facts, um, <laughs> you know, which, I, <laughs> uh, which I think underpins a, a lot idea. of Don's <laughs> idea, ideas, um, as well. Uh, so, y- you know, the, 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 uh, what, what we try to do, uh, is, you know, identify, identify what, uh, from sort of Mao's speeches and, and, you know, what are seen as sort of key elements that he emphasized in his, you know, little red book, all of his other writings, um, and, and say, okay, so people, you know, went through the great leap forward. They went through the cultural revolution. They became, you know, part of the CCP, um, or not, uh, do those, did those early, um, Experiences have a lasting effect on their later life, uh, and and then we stu- we study this through through the you know methods I mentioned. And so, uh-huh. I, I think that it's reasonable to say that there are a variety of ideological principles that Mao espoused, um, and some of these may be overlapping a bit with you know traditional Marxist Leninist ideas, and some of them you know may not. Um, uh, but I think. You know that's sort of how we approach it, and I can't say. Um, you know, I, I think your point about people talking about China becoming more ideological now is a, is a good one because, yeah, what does that mean? I mean, ideolo- ideology can is a very broad term that can re- really relate to anything. Uh, I mean, you need some some, some of the adjectives around ideology to really explain, exactly explain
0: yeah. what it means. I yeah just I mean because most of the time when people say this, it just seems to me to boil down mainly to some variety of nationalism,
1: which sure. is yeah, yeah, not yeah, sure. to
0: me, I mean, sure nationalism is an ideology, but that's not usually what they mean, that's not what what they right. mean uh, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah,,
0: yeah. Uh, so you know I guess this just takes up to you know this this idea that everyone seems to see a lot of Mao in Xi Jinping. I, I honestly right. don't see that much. I mean, I, they're both strongmen, obviously, and again, stylistically, yes. Their temperament, though, their exercise of power, to me, that seems to have very little in common. And a lot of people see this last decade of Xi as a, a return to, to Maoist values as a key driver uh, in the way that the Chinese economy operates. But again, I, I don't see that very much. Um So I'm wondering what you guys concluded, whether uh, you see a sort of revival of it during these, this last decade under Xi.
1: Yeah. So we do, we do see a change. I mean, we do sort of discuss a change under Xi as opposed to, you know, the, you know, Deng Xiaoping, Jiang Zemin, the Hu Jintao, um, you know, period Mm -hmm. between, um, you know, Mao and, and, uh, and Xi. And. Clearly, you know, stylistically, they're different. I mean, Xi Jinping seems much more like a control maniac uh, or micromanager, right. I guess, um, as opposed to Mao, who is much more sort of laissez-faire in some ways. However, I do think, and 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 you could, I mean, you may argue, I mean, I you know, as you've been talking about that, you know, nationalism doesn't really—that that's something that you could say about any country in some way, uh, and I think right. that's true. But you know, Mao. China had just gone through the you know century of hum- humiliation. He used, I think, really a lot of you know China standing up. You know, China is a loose pan of sand that I'm going to bring together discourse, and I think was very assertive against the U S. against the Soviet Union in a way that is echoed in some ways now, and the nationalist discourse is also being echoed. So I, th- I think that actually. You know, you, you may disagree, but I do think that there is a connection around nationalism. I do think there's also a connection around sort of this campaign style of leadership. Um, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. I forget what the term is that that is that I've seen used. It's it's a the Chinese term. It's sort of like concentrate efforts to do big things in the semiconductor yeah. industry. Uh, oh no, I, like, don't, you know, I don't. I don't what...
0: dispute that at all. Absolutely, there's there's yeah. quite so, a bit of that.
1: So I think that these are things where there is echoes of, of, uh, of Mao. And I think that, you know, Xi Jinping, he was socialized in China during a time period that Mao was very strong. He is part of a set of institutions that Mao played a hand in, uh, in creating. And so I think that the, I don't know, the, the worldview of Xi is limited to uh, a set of you know a, se- a set of assumptions and and guardrails around institutions, I would think, that do have an influence of Mao. And so, you know, there is a lot of simplistic you know Mao two point discussion. And I'm not, right? I'm not saying you know that, but I'm saying that I you know I do think that by trying to understand the systems that Mao put in place, we can get some insight into she.
0: No, I, I I I totally get where you're coming from, and and certainly there's. Uh, insights to be derived from that, and and I mean, it's you, you go beyond this claim that well, yeah, since you're socialized into this, this is the stuff that you read. If you were a, a Shakespeare scholar in college, it wouldn't be surprising at all if many of the the, the, the stock phrases that you drew on came from his more <laughs> famous plays, right? Um, yeah, but it, it's it's obviously yeah. more than that. I, I just, I like, like you said. I mean, there's a lot of that Mao 2.0 thing going around, and and these just very kind of ignorant um, comparisons to the Cultural Revolution that are constantly happening. Sure. That, that betrays not only an ignorance of what the Cultural Revolution was, but also just this a tendency to to just kind of hyperbole when when it comes to Xi and what he's been doing. Sure. But hey,
1: uh, I would say though, Kaiser, do? just a quick, quick, uh, quick uh, comment. So you mentioned about sort of reading Shakespeare. Um, you know, and I think that that is maybe one way to think about it, but I see it more as actually socialization into like a religion.
0: And there is hmm. okay, a so lot quotes of So the King James Bible then, right?
1: <laughs> yeah. But, but a deeper, you know, influence. I mean, you know, being raised into a religion actually has a deep enduring influence on the way people, uh, think. I mean, I, I know myself at least, you know, I, I haven't been to a Catholic church in, I don't know, 30, 40 years, but you know, my first 20 years, I actually, you know, spent a lot of time and going to class on Saturdays and Sundays. And I, I do think that I catch myself at times thinking like, ah, oh, man, it's that damn early Catholic education
0: that is, um, you know, sort of behind <laughs> you. All. Yeah. And, you know, so many people compare the Catholic Church to the Chinese Communist Party that maybe- Right, yeah, this, yeah, yeah. That's a particular yeah. point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Hey, yeah. so, um, you know, your formal academic training- was in sociology, as we've said. Right. Uh, and it's not unusual for business professors to come out of that discipline, I mean, because sociology has an obvious link to to business. Um, but for somebody with a background like yours to tackle a book that's so wrapped up in politics, that has to be somewhat challenging. No? Um, how did you decide to take on a, such a sort of deeply political thing? When well, you, you yourself, and you're probably lucky for it, weren't steeped in all of that turgid, you know, party pros, and I had to study all that <laughs> stuff when I was coming up. With it. Ah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so I, th- I think part of it at least has to do with, you know, when I first started, you know, researching China in depth in two thousand nine. You know, one of the reasons that it, that sort of attracted me to study it is is this is how different it was as far as the strength of the state uh, than the U.S. And so I'd studied a lot the U S and some global phenomena mm-hmm. and, you know, in sociology, you know, part of what you're trying to do is gain somewhat of an understanding of general relationships. And so, you know, studying a system that's very, very different is appealing to try to you know, see what is idiosyncratic to the different systems versus a more general process. And so it was obvious when I started studying China that actually state government relations were crucial to examine and a, a number of the you know peer reviewed studies some of which are touched on in the book a bit look at different you know sort of advantages or ways that the government co-ops business and entrepreneurs through social networks so people that are former Bureaucrats that go on to run a business, entrepreneurs or business leaders that are on these different two sessions bodies, which you know not just exist at the national level but also provincial and city and and um, and on down. So I so I think that for 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 the ten years you know ten plus years that I've really was spending time in China when I was uh, studying Chinese companies, it was about really trying to understand how gov- how business interacts with the government and conversely then how the government influence in government and CCP influences, uh, business. And so, so that was, I think what led me, I mean, it was just a, not, if you're going to study business in China or you're going to be a business person in China, I think you have to focus on Get pretty steep the state.
0: Yeah. 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 No question. Hey, Chris, so you were a recipient of one of those controversial thousand talents awards. Um, right. and that, that. Program obviously has come under some criticism. Yeah. Uh, how did that happen? How did that come about? And and what was it specifically for? Uh, what did you What did you do to to you know gain their attention and to uh, to to receive this honor?
1: Sure, um, yeah, and actually, and it was an honor, really. I mean, I think uh, you know I appreciate you mentioning it like that. I mean, now it's a very controversial, and I think has sort of a negative tinge to it because of all these controversies, oh, yeah. but. You know, when I it was 2017 that I got the award, um, and yeah, I mean, I definitely you know was was grateful and saw it as an honor to, to be very honest. So at least as far as I know, the way that scholars get the ten thousand talents is that they are applied from a university, and so I would gotten to know. And I mean, I've I've worked at a number of Chinese universities, from Beidat and and uh, and Shanghai Jiaoda and Fudan um it's sort of the universities that people probably know well. But there's a university in Chengdu, you know, it's one of these uh, you know, 985 Jioba um universities. Yeah, yeah. So top top 40 universities in China. And I've gotten to know a lot of uh the folks there, I got to know the dean dean of the business school very, very well. And they have a program, like many probably all Chinese universities have a program to to, to gain access to these government talent funds, basically. Right. And so I was invited to, um, to, to, to apply basically through the government for a thousand talent award. It took a, probably at least a year and a half, you know, submitting wow. a bunch of information and, um, and then finally was, was awarded this. And I think the government, or excuse me, the, the, the school was really very supportive and active in this because I assume that they and you know, get some money as well. Associated with this. And so part of my work then was I established an academic center at the university, um, you know, UESTC, uh, University of Electronic Sciences and Technology of China, or Dienzo Koji Dashe. And so I established a center on sustainable business, uh, which operated for five years uh, during the five years of my sort of thousand talents contract. And yeah, I think it was not on anything technology related. It was, you know, business, business management, entrepreneurship, sustainable business. Uh, although I must admit, you know, when all this China initiative stuff was happening and all these cases like, you know, Charles Lieber, you know, I was a bit scared to be honest. I can't blame you. Yeah. Yeah. I always reported, you know, my activities to Cornell. I mean, all of the people that actually got called out for, not reporting this to the different, you know, sort of school their schools or agencies. That that always struck me as um every year there is conflict of interest reporting that you have to do. Uh, right. the the university is on your case about it. It's very detailed questions. So Cornell actually, so uh Dienza Coda, they were actually on the entity list. They became on the entity list while I was a thousand talents. So I was an employee of Wow. And so The Cornell legal department called me up uh, and said, "You know, you're on your uh, reporting. Is this university that is now on the entity list would like to talk to you about this?" And this was at the time when a lot of this these controversies going on. I was I was a little scared. I mean, they they actually they wanted to know what I was doing, and I was you know mentoring graduate students. I was working with faculty on publications. I held a summer camp every year for, you know, up and coming Chinese PhD students to help them learn how to research and publish in Western journals. And they said, okay, that's all, that's all totally fine. No issue with that, but you cannot transfer any Cornell property to them. And they said, I mean, even like a pen, you you know, even a pen of Cornell's, you cannot give to give to this university. Uh, So, you know, that sort of, I mean, it, was a little bit, a little strange, but, you know, that made me feel, you know, reasonably well that what I was doing was, you know, not uh, a foul of any sort of government regulations. Cause I do think things got a little crazy there or in the U S you know, with that China initiative, <laughs> Boy, does that... pe- people were being labeled spies when, you know, probably they had done some unethical things around not reporting of their taxes or not reporting, you know, not disclosing those relationships, but that's very different than spying.
0: So the spirit of Mao still haunts Chinese entrepreneurs. <laughs> the spirit of Joseph McCarthy still haunts American it's bureaucrats. Sure think, yeah, so yeah, a,
1: yeah. Uh,
0: yeah. Chris Marquis, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this book. It's called, once again, Mao and Markets, The Communist Roots of Chinese Enterprise. And the authors are Chris Marquis and Kun Yuan Chao. Pick up a copy today. And uh, congrats on, on publishing.
1: Great. Thanks so much, Kaiser. It was great to talk to you.
0: Yeah, well, let's move on to recommendations. I'll keep you here for a little bit. And uh, first, a very quick reminder that the Seneca podcast is powered by the China Project. If you like what we do with this and other shows in the network, like Chris Marquis's uh, China Corner Office, the best thing that you can do is to sign up and become an access member. Once you do, you'll get early access to this show, usually on Monday afternoons, but you know, not always, and and not you don't know, have to wait until Thursday and listen to the ads, right? So go to the China slash subscribe. It's only a buck for a month long trial, so what do you have? To, what do you have to lose? All right, let's move on to recommendations. Chris, what do you have for us?
1: Sure. The thing that jumped to mind um, was a book by uh, the economist Mariana Mazzucato. Uh, she mm-hmm. has a book, that a number of years ago, maybe ten years ago, called "The Entrepreneurial State." Uh, the reason why it jumped to mind is actually she has a new book out called "The Big Con," which is about how the consulting industry. You know, is filled with a bunch of lies and is running a bunch of businesses into the ground is basically what I can sort of understand, but uh, made me re- think <laughs> about this uh, this other book of hers um, and really resonates, I think, with my thinking around uh, the, the, this Mao and Markets book about how you know our ideas of what economic activity is, is really shaped by our culture. And what she describes is that people have this idea that government is inefficient, And so they really undervalue the deep innovation of government, things like, you know, the internet or pharmaceuticals, you know, hugely innovative things have come from the government. Conversely, then we overestimate, uh, the value of things like investment banking, which is just basically, you know, a middleman pulling, um, you know, sort of extracting value in some ways from, you know, a transaction between sort of individuals or companies. And so, you know, this idea that, you know, the value in economics actually has a deeply sort of cultural and perception element, I think is, is an important insight of her work.
0: Wow. That sounds fantastic. Great. And I want to read the big con too. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, Great recommendations. So I'll put both those books down as your recommendations then. Right. Um, so mine for this week, I was at my friend Allison's house last night uh, here in Chapel Hill. Uh, she's been on the show previously and will be again. Uh, she's a fr- good friend of mine from Beijing who used to run ping pong productions and then uh, was hired to run the West Kowloon Cultural Center in, in Hong Kong. She's now here at uh, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and runs Carolina Performing Arts. Uh, she's doing a bang up job. Amazing. Uh, she's just one of the most the people with the greatest energy I've ever met. But my recommendation is this. So on her wall in her kitchen was this um, lunar phase calendar. And I realized that, you know, I'm always clueless uh, about the phase of the moon at any given time. I'm always sort of surprised when I walk outside and see, my God, it's a full moon. Uh, so um, she turns out she had extras of the this same calendar. It's very attractive uh, that she was giving folks as a gift. And she gave me one and you can buy them online at, at, uh, The original lunar phase.com the original lunar phase.com really cool. They're just sort of this long rectangular uh, map. It'll fit like nicely on a column or sort of all, you know, in a wall spot. It'll be nice addition to your home. Check it out. Uh, My other recommendation is just a, a recent weird obsession of mine for or Mongolian milk tea, which if you ever traveled in that part of the world, you'll know from its distinctive salty yep. taste. Not everyone likes it. In fact, a lot of people just can't stand it. But I had this bizarre craving for it the other day. And so I just went online and I looked it up and figured out how to make it. And so it's really simple. You just take like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, a, a liter of water, get it boiling and throw in whatever tea you've got around. Just I, I'd use about the equivalent of maybe four four or five tea bags i threw some poor in there i had some lying around i threw some old lipton in that we use for making iced tea it doesn't have to be good tea you can use green tea i prefer black or poor uh for it but they use like low-grade brick tea so i thought poor was a good way to go anyway i i um add, add a little bit of uh salt like a teaspoon of salt if you're making about this much and then uh the same amount of milk so like a liter of milk mm. Like whole milk, you definitely want to use whole milk. You want that milk fat in there. Add a little butter if you want, or add some half and half or some cream. Um and it, it's and then you bring it almost to a boil again and it's ready to serve. It's uh really nourishing and tasty and it's you know, heavily caffeinated too as a bonus. So, <laughs> uh Mongolians drink this all the damn time. So uh it was it was great. It made me uh inspired to, to to shoot a lot of of arrows with my mongolian bow <laughs> <laughs> oh you're,
1: you're 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 gonna turn mongolian uh
0: i am i am all right chris man thanks thanks so much for taking the time that was really a pleasure to talk to you
1: yeah thanks so much kaiser loved it
0: the Seneca podcast is powered by the china project and is a proud part of the Seneca network our show is produced and edited by me kaiser guo We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at TheChinaProject.com or just give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts as it really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at TheChinaProj. And be sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Take care.